Back about uh, 12 years ago, my wife and I did a very, very foolish thing. And we actually believed that God wanted us to go and start uh, ministry among Somalis. Now, that, that's the good news. The bad news, it took us 1,991 years to get there. But I, I had never met a Muslim. I, I don't know how many of you have and how strange they feel to you. And uh, now, after all of these years being with tens of thousands of, of Muslims, uh, they're, they're my neighbors, they're my best friends. But up until that time, I had not met one of them. And, and I... I was trying to discern whether or not God wanted us to move our family yet again from South Africa all the way up to Kenya and start work with Somalis. And an older gentleman, one of my supervisors, says, here's what I'll do. There's a brand new refugee camp on the coast of Mombasa. 10,000 Somalis have been dumped off a ship. I can get you in there with a friend, United Nations, give you a little project. You go in there, rub up against these Muslims, rub up against these Somalis. Uh, this is years before Black Hawk Down. This is years before you ever heard a phrase called uh, Somali pirates, or they were defined that way. Uh, at that time, the <laughs> at that time the church the church still prayed for Somalis and still and still prayed for their salvation. And, and this advisor said, "I'll buy you a ticket. You go down there and stay for a couple weeks." But he 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 he, he sort of grabbed me a little bit harder, spoke to me a little bit sterner because he knows my personality. He knew my personality. And he says, now listen, Nick, and listen, you've never been with Muslims before. You've never been with the Somalis. You're going to be in a refugee camp. It's chain link fence around them. You're, you're going to be the only believer there. You keep your mouth shut because they eat little missionaries like you for lunch. Well, that's a pretty good challenge for a redneck, isn't it? And, uh, and so I went down there and, and found, wow, most of them speak better English than I do. They, uh, uh, they were professors. They were professionals. They, they were students. They were the ones that could afford to get out. I, I found a young college guy uh, named Abdulaziz, and he sort of became my friend. Uh, just entering the camp was very, very difficult. I mean, seeing what I saw because some well-meaning uh, short-term volunteers uh, had got to that refugee camp before I did, and they thought the best thing that they could do was give each Somali, whether they could read or not, uh, a 12-pound Somali Bible. And the Somalis were so thankful to receive them because it was the rainy season uh, in Mombasa. So they made sidewalks out of God's Word, and all 10,000 of them were walking on them every where they went, and they would laugh at me as I walked in the mud beside uh, the Bible. And, and the hundreds of Bibles that they had left, they put them in the latrine for toilet paper. Well, this is going to be different. You know, this is not, not going to be like we experienced in Malawi when people begged us to bring God to them. And, and, you know, after three days, you know, my personality, growing up the way I have with five brothers and aggressive and type A and comp competitive, and, and I thought, I got this thing figured out. So I looked at Abdulaziz uh, about mid-morning. Morning. I said, hey, Abdi, I, I've, I've got an important question to ask you. Do, do you know my friend Jesus? And Abdi just exploded. I mean, 
he's just yelling and his arms are waving and saliva is flying. And I didn't know at this time this is the way that I and would come to act because it's just the way Somalis act. They're, they're, just, they're, they're just out there. They're, they're just expressive and they give directions with their tongue and that's such fun. And, and, and they, they're just grabbing you by the face and holding you by the arm and dragging you. And, and all this stuff I'm hearing, Nick and Ripkin and Jesus, all this stuff thrown together in a language that I had yet to learn. And, and, and I thought that uh, now the 35 or 50 guys that had gathered forced me against the uh, uh, chain link fence with the razor wire around the top. And and, and I'm just saying to God, okay, this is it. I'm done. Uh, I should have kept my big mouth shut. Uh, there's 10,000 uh, Muslims between me and the one gate coming in here, and I've offended every one of them. And I just said, God, just take care of Ruth and the boys because I'm not getting out of here. And they argued, and, and, and they're going on with this, this discussion. And finally, they broke around me in a semicircle, and I thought, okay, here it comes. And Abdi uh, Aziz walked up to me, and his arms crossed as if he's just rigid in anger. And he said to me, Dr. Ripken, we don't know your friend Jesus. But Mahmoud thinks he's heard about him and thinks he lives in a refugee camp up the road. So if you'll go out the gate and go left and, and go about a mile to the next camp and you ask for Jesus there, maybe you'll find your friend at the next refugee camp. I said, thank you so much. And I went straight out that camp <laughs> and went right and got a taxi, eventually flew back to, uh, to South Africa from Kenya. And I told God, I said, you want these people, you can have them. I haven't lost anything here, and, uh, and I made a, another dumb mistake, and uh, I, I, I said to my wife, rather than just telling her, uh, I'm not going back, I asked her to, to pray about it, and two months later, we're moving, and I haven't asked her to pray about it, well, I do, but you, you, you get the point. I, I want you to know, I am the spiritual head of my house. I find where she wants to go, and I lead her there. Everybody's happy, right, guys? You've been there. Everybody's happy. And, but what, what did I need in the camp? Did, did I need another Sunday school lesson? Did, did I need to go to another theological, systematic theology class? Did, uh, did, did, I, did I need to study Old Testament? What did I need? You know, you know what, what I lacked in that refugee camp? I would have made my father ashamed of me because I wasn't tough enough to stay there. I didn't have the guts to do the hard stuff. Uh, I got scared uh, after three days uh, being with a people group that out of 10 million that we only knew later on, we found out there were uh, a little bit over 100 believers out of 10 million. And, and I ran uh, with my uh, tail between my legs because those people scared me to death. I, I wasn't tough enough to stay. Now, if you were here Friday night, what, we, what I wanted to do with you a little bit Friday night, and, and I, I was a little abusive to you. You, you told me that. That's fine. Uh, I accomplished my purpose. Uh, is, is for you to look through a window and see how much culture is trying to capture you. Uh, a, a lot of people, uh, when they say the word Christian and American, they mean the same thing. That's not the same thing. And having Christianity tied to directly to any culture is devastating.
for that culture, especially if the country is the defining modifier, is the word that precedes who we are called. And, 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 and so I am uh, uh, not tough enough to stay there. I'm not tough enough to take the gospel to the nations. I ran with my tail between my legs. Why? Because I, I didn't have a deacon. I didn't have an elder. I didn't have a man. I grew up in a non-Christian home, and, and I, I never had anyone take me under their wing and say, this is what a man in Jesus looks like. If I'd had a mentor, uh, they, they would have possibly pointed me to, to John the Baptist as one of the toughest guys in the Bible. Jesus said he was so tough, he was like Elijah. So here's what I want to do. Friday night, we sort of looked to, through a window at how the culture is trying to capture us and how we need not get captured. Somebody needs to be able to talk about you and us as followers of Jesus and not have a country modifier in there. It shouldn't be that when Muslims hear the gospel, they think in order to come to Christ, they have to go to America. That they have to go uh, to a country. That being in Jesus is defined by environment rather than being in Christ. Wow, they're not the same thing. You're so quiet. I may need to go in another direction, all right? But, but John the Baptist, here, here's what I want to do today. I want you to look in a mirror. I, I want to hold, at the end of this message, I want to hold you up so you can look at yourself. And what my wife and I have been, I, I'll just be honest with you, we've been so overwhelmed by this church this weekend that if they don't let us come back, I'm going to break in. I'll find a way to come back, all right? Uh, I, it's not healthy for those of us who feel that God's planted us overseas for our life to fall in love with a group of people like we have this weekend. But what I want to do is, is, is to do something I don't usually do. I want to hold a mirror up to you, and what I'm going to say about you when we leave this country, when we meet your brothers and sisters from places like Bangladesh, like India, places that you've got represented in your hallways and your hearts today and out of your pocketbooks today, we're going to be telling them about you. So when we hold up this mirror this morning, I want you to picture in your mind that believers in persecution are looking over your shoulder. And they want to see who you are and, and what you're like and what is God doing in your midst and, and I want to jump off using John the Baptist because if ever there was a tough guy, and I'm going to be looking in chapter 11, but you know the story. If you're not a believer, look it up. You know, if you're a non-believer, look up Matthew 11. If you're a believer, just listen. And, and, and what I want you to do is when you walk out of here, uh, you, you can begin also telling this story. And there's been a really significant things going on. Jesus has sent out the 12 he, he sent out the, the 72. He, now get this, I, I've always struggled. Why was Jesus baptized? And one of the clearest things that believers in persecution have taught us is that Jesus was baptized because to launch his ministry in an in, in a unbelievable, dark, and demonic world, he needed to belong somewhere. And he needed a base. 
You know, baptism for Jesus was saying, I have been baptized of John. This is where I belong. And these are the people that I will minister with. And he took disciples from within the disciples of John. And these are the people I will die with and die for. Only John get, got to go first. John got to go first. He probably didn't expect that when he baptized Jesus and launched Jesus from John the Baptist's base uh, in, into the world. And, and so John the Baptist was tough. And now what he's done, he is so unbelievably tough. Uh, I need to sit down, but I'm just, I, I'm just so passionate about this that he stuck his prophetic finger in the face of Herod, and he said, I don't care who you are, you can't do this. You can't sleep you can't have sex with your brother's wife and, and not believe that God is going to punish you from this. You don't do this. And Herod did to John what Herods are doing to believers today, and he put John in prison. I don't know if you know this, but 70% of all believers who are practicing their faith, that's as close as we can get statistically, is that 70% of all believers on the planet who are practicing their faith, live in environments where persecution is normal. Now, you already knew this. You're abnormal. I, I want to start shaping that mirror that you're looking in. I, I want you to realize that the mirror that most believers on the planet, and we go people group by people group, country by country, they live where it's normal to lose their children if they come to Jesus Christ, if their parents are still Muslims. They, where it's normal for them to lose their job. Where they can say to me, Dr. Nick, uh, when there got to be uh, 25 people meeting in this house church where I was leading, they fired me from the factory. They fired me, fired my wife from the school. They kicked our three kids out of school. And they look at me and say, well, you know, Nick, little things like that. And those people are alive today. I don't want you to put this in past tense. Don't, don't do that. Everything we're talking about, this is, this is today. This is us writing ourselves in John the Baptist story. It's John the Baptist story being reflective and revealing and, and, and prophetic of, of the story that will happen generation after generation after generation. And, and so here John the Baptist is in prison, and he's got what believers in persecution say is, is some of the worst experience because they pray that not if, get this, not, not if they go to jail, but when they go to jail, they get to go with somebody. That, you know, I don't know how many of you are deacons or elders, but are Sunday school teachers. I've heard deacons pray in China, oh God, when I go to prison, would you let a couple other deacons go with me? Well, if I was a deacon, I wouldn't hang out with that guy any longer, you know. Can you imagine praying like that? Oh, having your pastor pray, oh Lord, uh, uh. Uh, when I am arrested for my faith, would you let some of the elders, some of the deacons go with me? And you say, Pastor, pray different, dude. And, and so, again, trying to shape what that mirror looks like. And in this story, John the Baptist is about to lose his head for righteousness' sake. There are folks like me running all over the world making all kinds of mistakes. And when I make 
significant mistakes in places like Afghanistan and Somalia. If I am not careful as an outsider, I will cause the arrest of local people. I could even cause the death of local people. And we have found that if you get killed for who Jesus is, faith explodes. So if you get killed for who Nick is, you start over. And we can unpack that more later if you want to, because I am coming back. I, I, I'm going to get back here one way or the other. I think they want Ruth to come back, and so like I'll do most of the time, I will follow her here. Once we arrive, then I'll lead her through the door, all right? So that satisfies, you know, my culture and her culture. You know we're both PKs, right? She's a pastor's kid, and I'm a pagan's kid. And so we have all the spiritual gifts that we need. Uh, I, I know what it's like to be lost. I know what it's like not to be John the Baptist. I know like it, what it's like to be sitting there with Herod watching the women dance. I got family still there. Maybe you do too. So John the Baptist is the toughest man, one of the toughest men in the Bible. And his head's going to roll. And he sends his disciples. Isn't this odd? If you were writing this story, what would you think would be at the end of this story? He sent his disciples to, to Jesus and said to him. Now, he's baptized him. He knows who he is. He's announced him uh, uh, to those around him. But now that his back is against the wall and the axe is being raised, he wants to know, Jesus, are you whom we were told you are? Are you the one, John the Baptist asked, or do I wait for somebody else? Well, that's pretty well. If they're going to kill you the next day, you, you don't have a long time to wait. And he wants to know, am I going to die for something that's from the kingdom of God, or I'm just going to die because I took the bad guys on? Am I going to die for myself, or am I dying, or am I dying for something larger than me? You see, believers in persecution teach us, brothers and sisters, that every one of us deny our faith. None of us keep our faith out there like we should. The most common denial of faith is failing to take an opportunity to witness when God gives that to you. That's a denial of faith. And, 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 and John the Baptist is no uh, different from this. He's alone. He's in enemy-held territory. He's about to get killed, and he, and he sends word to Jesus, are you the one, or should we wait for somebody else? And, and quickly, you know what I thought Jesus would say? I, I thought Jesus would say, just like we sang, just like we read up here a moment ago, that God is Jesus and Jesus is God. I, I thought Jesus would say to John, hey, hey man, I, I, you already know I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of God, and, and he could give, giving anything from, from Alpha to Omega, uh, John could have given that, uh, 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 Jesus could have given that to John, but what did he do? Now, church, what I'm asking you is that what, it, what is it today in your world, and as believers in persecution, look over your shoulder, what is it that authenticates the gospel as good news? That, that, that proves, that proves that if Jesus is not the answer, there is no answer. We've been those places. If, if it's not Jesus, there is no answer. 
And so Jesus looks and said, hey, you go back, and, and what do you do? You go tell John. Now listen, church, what authenticates the faith today here in, in this place, in this city, in this state, in this country? Go back and report to John. And this is among as the gospel is preached, is shared, is, is modeled among the lost people in the marketplace. You got to get the context right. You go back and tell John what you hear and see. Go talk to the folks in this hallway. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And John is about to lose his head. And what does Jesus say to him? Says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John's not going to stumble, he's going to die. But Jesus wanted John to know that as his head was going to be carried on a platter back up to Herod and given to Herodias by her daughter, that John's soul would be in the presence of Almighty God. That's what John wanted, Jesus wanted John to, to know that what was going to be happening to him was not going to be defined by Herod, but it was going to be defined by God. Who calls the shots? And so let's, let's do, I don't even know what time we're supposed to quit. Now we're in trouble. You know what time we're supposed to quit? I'm supposed to look at you. 12.10. That's when you usually quit. I want you to see the heart of God and how he's going after Muslims. We're literally seeing tens of thousands of Muslims come to faith. We're seeing that God will leave the 90 and 9 in the open country who have eternal life so that one Al-Qaeda person can hear the gospel. Whether you agree with God or not, that's what God is doing. God is saying we are expendable for the kingdom of God. If for my opinion, that's what global mission conferences are, are about, is how do we expend ourselves? It's not if we expend ourselves, but how do we die for Jesus among the nations as well as this nation? And Mom and I have watched, and Ruth and I have watched, that 90% of the Muslims that we have sat with who have come to Christ, God has given them dreams and visions that set them on their way to finding Jesus. Now, you need especially the age of this group, you need to hear me say very clearly, dreams and visions don't save anyone, only Jesus saves. But God is using dreams and visions to get their attention. They're going on spiritual pilgrimages. And sadly, in a lot of places, because we have yet to get there, that pilgrimage may last for a number of years, and they may have 30-some encounters with believers like you, like, like Joseph was to Pharaoh, like uh, Ananias was to Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, like Philip was to the Ethiopian eunuch, and God is doing all this miraculous stuff so Muslims can have a clear shot at the kingdom of God. Uh, my wife and I, we've, be, we've been among uh, uh, 
uh, church planning movements. There's books about it out here on, on a table that you can get for about 10 bucks. We've been among church planning movements where 10 to 40,000 people were baptized a month. That's pretty good growth, isn't it? And, and what fuels that? It's not interesting enough for these Hindus in this place, in that place at that time, was the dreams and visions of Muslims. It was uh, uh, going into villages where maybe there's one doctor for three million people. Got that? That's why we do what we do. One doctor for three million low-caste people. How many are sick? Hands go up by the hundreds in one village. How many want to be healed? Hands go up. And the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame's walking, uh, the leprosy is being cleansed the demons are being cast out in Jesus name just as if it was in the New Testament because it is the New Testament today and we're getting to watch things like that but to see those things guess what church we've got to go if you're going to see it where God's doing it and it's not well let's just hold this thought I was going to go somewhere else but let's just let's let's just witness a miracle in our midst because I'm not going to say what I was going to say all right so, and we've been and we've watched him do the same thing among Buddhist people. And, and in China, prior to 1970, we can't find churches planted except through miracles of healing. When I went to lost people in rural China and asked them, who are those people meeting in that compound? It was house church leaders, church planners, evangelists, pastors. And he said, oh, uh, those are those people who love Jesus and, and they pray for the dead to be raised. And, and, and I get up one morning after teaching one night about how much the Word of God is necessary for the kingdom of God to explode. And the next day I get up and I'm in a compound about the size of this sanctuary with about 170 men, women, house church planners, evangelists, pastors in the mix. And they're sitting on the ground. And from a distance I look at them and it's really strange. They're tearing, they're tearing books in pieces. That's really weird, 7 o'clock in the morning. And to my shock, I walk out uh, uh, among these folks and, and I look down and they are tearing their Bibles to shreds. And the interpreter comes over and sees my face and he says, wow, don't worry, Nick, don't worry. They were so convicted by your words last night that out of these 170 leaders, only seven of them have a Bible. These were the leaders. So they vowed unto God last night, led by the Holy Spirit, that everybody got to go home without at least one book of the Bible. Isn't that cool? So they're walking, they're walking, I know, 10 after, I'm there. Uh, they're walking between all these people sitting on the ground and they walk up to someone like Dave and ask Dave, have you taught Genesis? And Dave says, no, I've never had Genesis. I've had to sort of teach it by memory. And they carefully rip out Genesis and give it to him. And they walk over to this sister and say, have you taught uh, the Psalms? Have you been able to sing the Psalms? And she said, no. And she, they, they have to tear it two or three times because it's such a, a big book and get it out and give it to her. Have, have you done John? No. Ezekiel no and they had vowed that everybody got to go back home with at least one book of the Bible and I watched that in amazement I thought oh I felt so sorry for the guy who went home with third John what what what, what if you got Matthew and your colleague gets Philemon <laughs> you know half page or something like that you know you're gonna get fired if you were paid you get fired but anyway they weren't and just to watch their hunger 
to take, uh, to hold a piece of the Word of God, but they'd hidden so much of it in their hearts that without the literate Word, they had uh, seen over 10 million people come to Christ. And now watch uh, how God puts even a more firm foundation in that. And, and, and we're, we're watching this kind of stuff. And, and I'm, just, I'm just, my brain is so full of being with the, seeing how the Hindus are coming to Christ. And my brain and heart is so full of, of, of the dreams and visions of how Muslims are coming to Christ. And now the Chinese miracle after miracle. And the lost people are testifying about the New Testament church. And I'm just going, wow, wouldn't it be good while I'm here uh, to see some of this? And then the Chinese asked me about you. They wanted to know about your practices. And then I tried my best to sketch real quick a week in the life of a church, uh, whatever is a normal church, uh, an American uh, Western church, and uh, maybe a little bit of the annual practices. And, And I'd been talking about 10 minutes, and they started sobbing. And I'm going, this is not good. I mean, these are leaders. These are, the, these, all of these had been in, in prison for three years for their faith. All, for, well, 40% of the group, but these are the, these are the leaders that I'm off to the side with. And now I, I've made them cry. And my wife is not there to tell me what I did wrong. You know, it's hard when you carry your brain and your conscience outside of your body. You said she has, to, you know, she goes with me everywhere. She has to. I, I, I'm like Christopher Columbus. I, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. When he got back, he didn't know where he went. That's me. Uh, I'm perfect to interview believers in persecution because you can torture me. I can't remember names and places. I'd have to make it up to give it to the bad guys. But I can remember every story that I've heard. But you didn't need that really, did you? And so I've, I've got all this stuff in me, and they're weeping. And I said, what's wrong? What have I done to you? And they, they shocked me down to my toes when they said, oh, Nick, why does God love believers in Jesus in America so much more than he loves the believers in China? And my heart just quit. My brain went completely blank. And I looked at them and I just said, excuse me, what are you talking about? They said, you don't see, you don't understand. I said, I I don't have a clue. I think even if my wife's here, both of us together would not have a clue. I I don't know what you're talking about. They, they said, you don't see the, the miracles that God is doing among the churches in America that are so much greater than, than, than anything we've experienced in China? And I thought, man, what are these people smoking? Where, where has their brains gone? Uh, the blind are seeing, the, the lame are, are walking, they're tearing their Bibles into shreds so everybody can have one book, and they talk about this being a a greater miracle of God. And and I just said to them, basically, my attitude, my body language was, uh, you've lost your minds. And they looked at me and they said, you really don't understand. I said, I don't have a clue. And they asked me, folks, stay with me. Which is the greatest miracle? That 40% of our evangelist house church planners and pastors 
have been arrested in prison for three years, and they have to hide out and go from place to place to place. And you say to me that at East, East Cooper Baptist Church, on, if they wanted to on every day of the week, Buster, staff, anybody that wanted to could stand here and proclaim the gospel, could do it in the marketplace, could do it wherever he wanted to, and no one's going to be beaten. He is not going to have his children taken from him. He, he's not going to be tortured. He's not going to put, be put in jail. And, and the top leaders of East Cooper will not be killed as it is in our experience. And they said, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? That our, our pastors and evangelists and, uh, and, and church planners go from place to place, hide out and go to prison, and you tell us you can proclaim 24-7, which is the greatest miracle. We meet in groups of 30. When persecution gets worse, we go to groups of 15. When it gets really bad for a season, we may go to one family. And we meet on different days of the week in different places. And, and we're always mobile and we're always fluid. And you're going to tell me that on a certain Sunday in February in 2014, you're going to be at a church called East Cooper Baptist Church. And, and you're actually going to describe that if the congregation wanted to, they could meet every day of the week. They could sing all day. They could share Jesus all day. They could read responsibly all day. And none of you are going to get busted. None of you will be arrested. None of you will be tortured. And none of you will lose your job and be killed. They said, Ripkin, which is the greatest miracle? 100,000 of us might get healed. Maybe 10 or 15 will figure out it came from God. And his name is Jesus. And you tell us. You can fly into Jacksonville, Florida, call ahead of time from the Middle East, and a Baptist surgeon at a Baptist hospital and a Baptist nurse and a Baptist anesthesiology, uh, anesthesiologist will meet you in your hospital room, lay their hands on you, and operate on you for free, which is the greatest miracle, son, that God heals us and just the random person can see him in it but you can access medical care for 24 7 and you don't go to jail and get beaten over that they said which is the greatest miracle son you've watched us tear our bibles into shreds so that everybody can have at least one book of the bible and you tell us that on your desk back where you're from and at that time was in ethiopia that you have six versions of the bible you have music on cassettes and, and thumb drives and all of this stuff. And we've never held a piece of music in our lives. Which is the greatest miracle, son? And I cried like a baby. Because I called this common. I, I've looked at this and said, this is what we deserve. I look at this and say, thank you, government. May God forgive us. And, and, and I, I look at my children and, and our health care, and, and, and I look, look at, and I, I listen to this orchestra for two times in this choir, and folks, my feet were on the floor, were not on the floor, and I'm weeping because I can't imagine going back into the darkness that we will face without this. 
And I walk into here and there's goosebumps all over my arms and my wife is weeping and I watch my children weep because they know what we have here is a miracle from the very throne of God. Here's your challenge. I'm not asking you to believe that the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing. I'm not asking you to believe in dreams and visions for Muslims. I'm not asking you to believe that demons are being cast out among Buddhists. I'm not asking you to, to see and believe the overt healings among Hindus. What I'm asking you to do this morning is to see that what God has carved out for you here is one of the greatest miracles on the planet. And God forgive us if we call this common, if we call this normal, if we call this what we deserve. And this is what I am entitled to. This Muslim girl came to Christ, led 36 women to Christ in a horrific environment, baptized them, had them in a small group. She was representing women who had been raped by the Taliban in local courts. And they were after her to kill her because she was a believer, because she led others to Christ, Muslims to Christ, and because she was uh, taking the Taliban to court. One of the strongest, most powerful, godly young women on the planet. The United Nations wanted to resettle her in Missouri. I begged her. I begged her to stay for the salvation of her people. But it got so bad that before I got home, she was resettled in America before I got back to Ruth in Kentucky. And soon after returning, uh, Ruth called her and sent her a plane ticket and she flew to see us in rural Kentucky. And she came and stayed in our house for a week. She met with the college students and told 90 college students that met every week in our home how she was the first believer in her family, in her city, her first one in her people group, and how she had already led 30-some Muslims to Christ. On Saturday of that week, uh, we took her to our uh, local moderate-sized church, smaller, much smaller than this one, and let her see it on Saturday and what it looked like and, and what it felt like and how men, she couldn't believe that men and women were going to be able to worship together. She, she couldn't believe that men and women, that she'd ever see them singing in a choir together. She, she, just, she was just so overawed by the thought of you that on Sunday morning she was so keyed up and then something snapped in her brain because the, uh, the pastor or somebody baptized a whole family that Sunday morning. Father, mother, a couple teenagers, and a younger uh, part of the family. And this girl just, I thought she was having a panic attack setting between me and Ruth. And I whispered to her, uh, uh, do you need to go outside? And she said, no, I think I'm going to shout. I said, why? She said, I never, I could never dream, nobody in my world could ever dream that this could ever happen. You're telling me a whole family is being baptized in public and none of them will be killed? They won't be beaten? The children will not be taken away by the mosque, by the grandparents? She said, I never, never dreamed that a miracle like this could ever take place. She said, I think I'm going to shout. I said, shout, sister, if they chase you out, I'll go with you. And she looked around and she said, why is everybody just sitting still? 
Why aren't they up and shouting and praising God? Don't they recognize that this is perhaps the greatest miracle that any culture could ever experience? She said, oh God, for the day, for the day that I could see a family baptized in Jesus' name in my people group and no one be killed. And there we sat. And there we sat. I want you to look in that mirror. And Chinese and Africans and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus are looking over your shoulder at you, at this miracle. And they're wanting you to claim your heritage. They're wanting you to flood God's altar in your heart and see what from the very throne of God He has given you. This is a miracle. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. This clay that is East Cooper Baptist Church has been formed by the very hands of God. Lord, I want to ask, Lord, what are we to do with you? And I know you're asking, what, are you, what is it you're going to do with us? Father, help us to come to terms with the miracle of our salvation, which is as great as any salvation on the planet. Let us claim that miracle. Let us look around us and see this believing husband, wife, young person, child, and see the miracle. Let's look at Buster and Dave and staff members and see the miracle. Let us walk outside and stand by away from the church and see the miracle. Let's look at the inserts and see how a church rather would give away what they have rather than keep it for themselves and see the miracle. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for renewing my faith. Thank you for coming to Ruth and I as we face hard times and encouraging us with the miracle that is East Cooper Baptist Church. For these, for these miracles, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.